I need you to join me in three passages of Scripture this morning. Genesis chapter 5, just a few pages into your Bible. That will address Enoch. And Enoch is addressed again in Hebrews 11. That's back towards the end of your Bible. And then Jude, just one chapter, Jude verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 5, Hebrews 11, and Jude 14 and 15. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to admit to you something that occurred to me uh, back a while ago after 27 years of marriage to my bride. She's not here today. She's with the women and her family in Pigeon Forge. Um, I know that makes you nervous because I behave better when she's here. And when I'm around, she behaves better as well. So no telling what's going on. But uh, it occurred to me a few months ago that my wife, through the years, has been very easy to please. Fellas, you got a wife like that. There's only one possible answer to that, by the way. Uh, In fact, she is so easy to please, she is really not only a University of Tennessee fan, she's an SEC fan. Now, I know that's, that's heresy in the Southeast Conference, but as long as someone's not playing Tennessee, any SEC team that's playing, she wants to win. She's a fan of them all, okay? And uh, that's how she is. Now, again, to some of you, I know that's utter heresy, but uh, that's, that's how easy she is to please. Now, on those rare occasions when she gets annoyed with me, it's not hard to turn her. All I've got to do is get in the vehicle and drive to a convenience store and buy a Diet Coke in a can. Now, there have been times, apparently a lot of other fellows have got that uh, in their marriage relationship, because I've gone to convenience stores and they've been out. And I've driven all over this city (laughs) looking for a Diet Coke to get on good terms with her. And it doesn't matter which one of the three sizes it's in, uh, as long as it is a canned Diet Coke, that turns everything and makes everything better. Wouldn't it be great if God was that easy to please? He is. In fact, he's easier. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 are going to tell us how we can be a pleasure to God. Look with me there in Hebrews chapter 11 and beginning in verse 5, where we will talk about Enoch. Now we'll go from there back to Genesis 5 and Jude 14. And so I want you to keep those passages handy. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, describes how Enoch pleased God with faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You can please God with faith. And the question I want to ask and answer this morning is real simple. How do I know that I've got a faith that pleases God? Well, the first is this. Faith that pleases God recognizes the voice of God. Faith that pleases God recognizes the voice of God. Faith that pleases God is searching for God's direction, alert and sensitive to Uh, opportunities for God to speak to the heart and speak to the mind. Now, to talk about my wife again, a couple of years ago, we went to uh, New Hampshire and visited there for a while. And after a couple of days, it occurred to us that some of the waiters and waitresses and those that were working in the shops might be struggling some. She would make a statement and they would say, "I, I, I I don't know. 
Well, she hadn't asked a question. She had simply made a statement, like, for example, this pot pie, this is good. And the waiter would respond, I, I don't know. Do you know something? It occurred to us after that happened about six times, they didn't understand her with her accent. And those of you that don't know, she's got a really pronounced East Tennessee accent. It's beautiful. Poetry and music in her voice. When we lived in Gwinnett County, we had people in our neighborhood in our Sunday school class that would call us just to listen to her talk. And uh, they, they were not able to discern plain, perfect, superior English in, in a place like that. You know, some people are that way when it comes to God's voice. They struggle that way. God may be speaking, but they don't recognize the fact that God is speaking. I remember when one of my children was born, we brought this child home from the hospital, and I was sitting in my recliner uh, a few days after this child's birth, and I, I held this child, and it occurred to me, this child does not believe a thing I believe. It, this child doesn't mean to, but this child's an atheist. Doesn't embrace Christ yet, is not even aware. And in that moment, God laid it on my heart. I was to rededicate myself to being the very best dad that I could be to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord like these parents committed themselves to do today. In other words, holding that child was an opportunity for God to speak to my heart. And look, back in Genesis 5, that's what happened to Enoch. Enoch was the father of Methuselah. And Methuselah lived 969 years. And you may struggle with some of those ages. You may wonder, well, how in the world did they live so long? But that's not the right question. The, 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 that's not the right question. The right question is not, how did they live so long? The question is, why don't we? You know, we, we were not made to die. It's an unusual thing. And death is not a friend. Uh, we, we've, we've brought as a human race this upon ourselves. But Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, look what it says there. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. And then God took him to heaven without death. Now, did you notice what it said there in verse 22? It said, after. After Methuselah was born, Enoch began to walk with God. Now, I don't know what Enoch was doing before Methuselah's birth. I have no idea. I don't know if he was careless, ungodly, reckless. The rest of his culture is. It is this particular culture on which God sends the universal flood and drowns them all. It's a very wicked culture. Jesus said it would be that way before his return. And, and so I don't know what, Methuselah was, or what Enoch was doing, but he wasn't walking with God. It was after his walk with, it was after Methuselah's birth that he began to walk with God. God got his attention through the birth of that baby boy and turned him and moved him to where he walked with God. And he walked with God not just 40 or 50 or 60 years, which the best of us do, but he walked with him 300 years before God took him. God speaks in many ways. Well, does he speak audibly? Well, if you want to hear God speak audibly, open your Bible and read it aloud. That's God speaking audibly. It's not necessary to do that. I won't say it never happens, but that's usually the result of spiritual weakness, not maturity. That's the only way God can get some people's attention 
is to speak audibly. I, I guess maybe it happens once in a while. It's never happened to me. But it's much more clear than that. He, he impresses the heart. He impresses the mind with a relentless and persistent impression that is consistent with the Scripture. Then he'll speak through the Bible. Sometimes he speaks through friends. Sometimes he speaks to the gathered church when they are in unity. God has many ways that he speaks. He speaks through the gospel. Anytime somebody declares the death and the resurrection of Christ, that is God's call to you to repent and believe the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So the sign that God is trying to get your attention and that God is working on you to bring you to himself is that someone is preaching the gospel like I am today. And whenever the gospel is preached, that is God's indication to you that it's time to get yourself right with God by trusting Christ in Christ alone. That's the sign that God is working. Somebody is telling the gospel. So God has many ways. God has many ways of speaking. And the problem then, like Dr. Stanley says so often, is that is the, the problem is not that God is not speaking. The problem is we're not ready to hear or we don't have the skills. Let me assure you this. If you'll simply surrender to do whatever God wants you to do, do a face plant daily in your Bible, you're going to hear God. If you surrender and have a heart for doing what He wants you to do. In other words, the skill necessary to hear the voice of God is surrender to His will. And whenever you know that, set aside your own desires, God will speak. So faith that pleases God recognizes the voice of God. But there's a second thing. It not only recognizes the voice of God, it emphasizes the future of God. Now, turn back again to Hebrews 11 and look at Jude 14. Hebrews 11 and Jude 14. God, throughout the Word, is constantly beckoning us to cast our eyes on His future. God has a future plan that is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and is expressed in biblical prophecy. Matthew Henry used to say, it ought to be the business of every day to prepare for our final day. And God does that with biblical prophecy. And it's remarkable what we find here in the uh, text. In fact, um, 14% of the book of Genesis is prophecy. 40% of Exodus, 59% of Leviticus, 36% of Numbers, and 36% of Deuteronomy. Isaiah is 59% prophecy, Jeremiah 60, Ezekiel 65, and Daniel 45. Matthew is 26% prophecy, Mark 19, Luke 22, and John 20. Romans is 21% prophecy, and Revelation is, as you would expect, 95% prophecy. And that's just a handful of the books of the Bible. There's so much more of it given to casting the attention of people on future eternity and prophecy. This is terribly, terribly important. And Enoch then, it comes as no surprise, is involved in several biblical prophecies. Verse number 5 of Hebrews 11, look there. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. Enoch is walking with God, and one day he gets closer to God's house than he is his own, and Lord says to him, one little girl supposed, uh, that God said, Enoch, you're closer to my home than yours. The hour's late. Just come home with me. And he went on to the presence of God. And he was not found. Apparently someone looked for him. That's a good thing. And they didn't find him. He was gone. God took him. He's one of the few 
with Elijah to never die. And you think, do you really believe that? Well, of course I do. If there's a God and if he raised Jesus from the dead, things like this are perfectly uh, understandable and perfectly believable. So of course I do. Yes, God took him to heaven without without dying. And so the first prophecy is evacuation. One day the Lord is going to cleanse the earth of all evil before Jesus returns. And before he does that, he does what every nation does. And that is he evacuates his embassies. His churches are his embassies. And before he ends up bringing the heavy artillery and weaponry to cleanse the earth of evil and wickedness, he's going to evacuate these embassies in the resurrection and in the um, in the uh, transformation of all living believers as described in 1 Thessalonians 4. And Enoch is an example of that. Before God brought the flood, God took Enoch out of the world. Before he brought the flood, he gave Noah an ark so he did not endure the judgment. Before he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he lifted Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Before God judges, He always rescues and evacuates His people so that they will not endure His wrath. That's why I believe that before the tribulation happens, as described in Revelation, Jesus Christ is going to raise the church, living and dead, out of the grave and out of this world before the tribulation ever starts. There are sweet interpreters who think differently, but that is the pattern of the Scripture. So we are to contemplate that. Then uh, in Jude, four, uh, Jude verse 14, uh, Enoch is involved in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he preaches, in fact, in verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Jesus Christ will take His church out of the world, bring the tribulation, then He will come back in glory, and He will come with ten thousands of His saints. This is the second coming of Christ. And then there's the great white throne judgment described in Revelation 20 that is really referred to in verse number 15. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. There's coming a day when everything we've done will be evaluated by God, and those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior will be saved because their sins were judged at the cross. Those who have not will be evaluated on the basis of their deeds, and their judgment will be assigned in that way. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. There is an appointment on God's calendar for every human, and we cannot change that appointment. Hebrews 9.27 makes that very, very clear. So I could understand, after all of this information, if you would get the idea that God emphasizes eternity and relentlessly directs our attention to it. Dallas Willard was a great philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, and he was a very dedicated Christian, wrote some of the best books on spiritual disciplines. One of his latest books, and he died in 2013, and they're still releasing books about him. One of his latest books talks about preparing for heaven. When he was two years old, his mother passed away from a botched uh, surgery and operation. And before she died, she looked at her husband and said, Keep the children's eyes on eternity. 
And that is what God is seeking to do in His Word constantly and relentlessly is to put our attention on eternity. So when we keep eternity before us then, we evaluate decisions asking how they impact eternity. For example, you think this morning, what am I to do with Jesus Christ? Okay, well, let me ask you this. What would be wise to do with Christ when you think about eternity? What's the best option there? Uh, You think about how you, you may spend. Well, in light of eternity, what is the best way to spend my resources and my time? Uh, Forgiveness. In eternity, what's the best thing there when it comes to my need to forgive other people? And and then, what what about the direction of your life, the the values, the commitments, the priorities, the the grand objectives in your life? What, What is the best thing to do with my life in light of eternity? What do I do with God's mission in the world? in light of eternity. What about this temptation that has been pestering me this week and maybe pestering me today? What do I do with that in light of eternity? And and so I'll go back to that first one. What do you do with Jesus Christ today in light of eternity? We, We believe, and the Bible teaches, that the wisest and best thing is to give your heart and life to Christ today and to make it public, to follow Him in baptism and to become a disciple who is deeply connected and committed to a local church. So at the end of this message, we will sing and our staff will stand here and we're going to invite you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus and do the only reasonable thing with Him in light of eternity. And you can do that right after this message. So the faith that pleases God recognizes the voice of God and emphasizes the future of God. But there's a third thing. Faith that pleases God personalizes a walk with God. Right now you're facing some decisions some critical decisions, and they're, they're, they're intense because you don't want to make a mistake. The mistake could be costly. Some of you are seeking to make some decisions, and then some of you are facing some stress about the future. You anticipate a conflict that's arising, and it's bothering you, and you're concerned about the status of a relationship. Some of you realize this week that you have a destabilized marriage. Some of you have got the burden of parenting, and it weighs on you just how important a factor you are in the life of a child. And it grips you every day. You're not casual, negligent, or nonchalant about this. This really grips you. Some of you are trying to defeat temptation. Listen, if there is just one thing that I could give to you facing whatever it is that you're facing, it would be the knowledge of how to walk with God. How to walk with Him. I want to tell you, I've known Jesus since 1982. And they taught me young when I was early how to, how to do a face plant in the Bible and how to hear the voice of God and how to walk with Him. And I haven't been perfect in it. I don't mean to claim that. But I've got to tell you, walking with Jesus Christ is the most meaningful and the sweetest thing a human can ever do. And walking with Jesus takes care of every one of these challenges. And here's why. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the one who knows how to direct people. I don't know the future, and I certainly don't know everything. But He does. Some days, I don't even know myself. But He knows every detail. He knows every factor. He he knows every exigency. He knows everything about everything. And He is more than competent to guide every person that turns to Him. 
That's the kind of God He is when He's Master and Savior of a life. You see, He is not distant, but He's near. He's not aloof, but He's active. He's not silent, but He communicates. And if I follow Him, I can know Him. Uh, That's why someone prayed one time, Lord, I want to know You more clearly and follow You more nearly and love You more dearly. And that's what Enoch did. In Hebrews 11, verse number 5, in Genesis 5, we find this. In fact, Genesis 5 says that Enoch walked with God, and Hebrews picks up on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and says, uh, uses the paraphrase that Enoch didn't walk with God, but he pleased God. Well, the two are about the same. And that is that Enoch was so pleasing to God, he walked with God. And it pleased God that Enoch walked with God. Now, this kind of walk with God implies several things. It implies reconciliation. The truth is, God has a case against every member of the human race. He is judge, he has a court system and laws and sentences, and he's got a case against the whole human race. But Jesus Christ has paid our court fees, consisting of death, and has suffered in our place, and so God is now willing to be good with us. God's willing to make it all right. In other words, there is nothing in God that needs to change in order for you to walk with God. He is all ready and He is all prepared and it's the passion of His heart and life to walk with every human being and every person. So God is reconciled. You've got to be reconciled with God then on His terms. Hebrews 10, 19, a chapter before will say, Seeing that we have boldness to enter God's presence through the blood of Christ, let us come near with full assurance of faith. If you'll come before God with faith, that's all it takes. You say, well, listen, I can't come before God. I I don't have any righteousness. I, I don't have any perfection. God says it's not necessary. If you've got faith, I never expected that from you in the first place. If you've got faith, I'll take that in the place of righteousness and perfection. So we get reconciled with God. He's, on, he's willing to be on good terms with us. Now we get on good terms with Him. And then agreement. It implies reconciliation. It, it, it implies agreement. That is that we continually agree with God about the issues of life and things in His Word. Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together unless they are agreed? That is... Whenever your life and your thinking are not aligned with something with God and you read in the Bible one thing and you think and believe another, you change. You immediately agree with God. You wrap your heart around what He says in His Word. And you begin that process the moment you're reconciled with God and you continue that process until the day you see Him. And so it's a constant readjustment and realignment of your thinking of your priorities and values, all that you are with who God is. And and then disciplines. I've mentioned several times, doing a face plant in the Bible, having a plan plan for that, Uh, seeking God in prayer, read the Bible and pray about what you read there, thinking through and contemplating what God is trying to say to your heart and life, and then gathering with others and seeking Him together. Now, when we drift from God, it's usually because we're lacking in one of these areas, but when we walk with Him, it's because we've given ourselves completely to them. And if you've drifted then, I want to assure you that the crucified, risen Savior is willing to make it all right with God today. He's very, very 
willing. Pete Rose was known for his passion in baseball. The annual All-Star Game is supposed to be kind of a casual thing. He didn't know what it meant to be casual in a baseball game. He rounded third base in the All-Star Game and dove at the catcher. And I think ruined his career as a result. And in order to score for the National League team on which he was playing. Well, you're not supposed to take an all-star game that seriously, but he did. He didn't know any other way to play baseball. And one time he made this statement. He said, I would walk through hell in a gasoline suit just to play baseball. You think, now, is that what you're asking me to do? No, 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 not you. You've got to understand Jesus did more to align with you, and to reconcile with you. He went to the cross and suffered hell there, separation from God, and poured out His life's blood in order to unify you with Him for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is in the Lord is one spirit with Him. In other words, today you could come so close to Jesus Christ that God would unify you with Him and your spirit and His spirit would be One, and that's not a metaphor. That's not a figure of speech. You would actually be unified inseparably, eternally with Him. And Jesus went through hell at the cross to make it happen. So today, return from God. Wherever you are, turn. One time I was traveling from Glorietta, New Mexico, trying to get back to Fort Worth. And I didn't realize I took the wrong highway or the wrong direction on the right highway until I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Colorado. So you know what I did? Well, if I was like some people, I would have just kept driving north, figuring, well, the world's round, I'll get there eventually. No, I turned around. And today, you're going the wrong direction. You need to turn around. And God lets you do that. He invites you to, and He will help you. And then you embrace Jesus Christ. You only embrace those that you trust. And so you trust Him enough to embrace Him. He's crucified. He's risen. You embrace that, and you embrace Him. And then you, you call on His name. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God is really willing to do it. How could we ever doubt anyone who would slaughter His own Son for our sake? Well, listen, in a moment, we're going to sing a song. We're going to ask you to come and give your heart and life to Christ or make some other decision for Christ. But let's pray about it now, and then we'll do serious business with God.